kindness, living in kingdom kindness. These three chapters, 2 Samuel 8, 9, and 10, they give us a, a great picture of how David is establishing his kingdom. And we've noted throughout our series in First and Second Samuel that as we see these pictures of David as the anointed one and the kingdom that he is establishing, that these are foreshadowing what is going to happen when the true anointed Christ comes and establishes his kingdom. And we will certainly see that tonight. Some really amazing pictures of what this kingdom ultimately will be as being now foreshadowed by David and the events that happen. In chapter 8, what you have for in this chapter is a picture of the victorious kingdom. It's a picture of the victorious kingdom in chapter 8. And I want you just to notice the first verse, which immediately gives us a sense of what this chapter is all about. In verse 1, after this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg Ammah out of the hand of the Philistines. Now you might read that verse and go, well, okay, so, you know, all right. But remember what's been important about what we've seen over these books is that we saw with Saul that God was raising up a king who would deliver Israel from the Philistines. That didn't happen under Saul. And we saw the Philistines were a problem and a threat. And I want you to see here that David deals with the Philistines and in particular the the town that he subdues may sound insignificant but the book of Chronicles reminds us or tells us that that's the city of Gath. Gath is a stronghold of the Philistines, a very important city of the Philistines. And David now has conquered that city. He has taken that town. And so with this simple sentence, you have huge implications about David and his kingdom and what he is able to accomplish, taking one of the Philistines' great cities right out of their hands. The rest of the chapter follows suit. Verse 2, he defeats. It's Moab. Moab has been a long time problem. And remember, a judgment was pronounced on them all the way back to Numbers 25, where we saw that the, the, Mo, the king of Moab was trying to cause a snare for Israel and was successful through Balaam and the problems of Moab. And so now David is able to conquer Moab. In verse 2, in verse 3, all the way really through uh, verse 12, all of these other surrounding areas of Israel are conquered. A good summary there is in verse 12. Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, from the spoil of Hadezer, the son of Rohob, and the king, uh, the king of Zobah. These, these are pictures of the kingdom now expanding. Getting the Philistines and conquering them. The Moabites on the other side of the Jordan conquering them. Going up to the north and the northeast. These areas that are described here are up into the north and the northeast and able to conquer them as well. These successes become so 
amazing that you and I are going to see then other nations trying to make terms of peace with with them. Like in verse 13, all the way to the end of the chapter. Now other nations are going to try to now make peace because of the fear of what he is able to do. Verse 10 shows it even. Toy the son of Joram, the king of David, but asked about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadassar and defeated him. You have other kings going, okay, we want to be on your side. We bless you, David. We're, we're, we're with you. Don't conquer us. And you're seeing this grand picture of the anointed. Verses 14 and 15, very important. Notice at the very end of verse 14. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel. And David administered justice and equity to all his people. I want you to hear really what a summary image that is of the reign of the anointed right there. That God is with David wherever he goes. He has success when he comes up against any nation or any king comes against him. God is with him and gives him success. And perhaps most importantly there in verse 15, he reigns over all of Israel administering justice and equity. This is where the screen would have been helpful where I had about six different quotations of different passages where this is echoed because it's in Psalm 2. It's in Isaiah 60 verse 5. It's in Isaiah 60 verse 11. It's in Isaiah 61 verse 6. It's in Haggai 2. It's in Zechariah 14. This picture of when the anointed comes, he's going to establish his reign in righteousness and in justice. And notice David is doing this. David is establishing Israel. We are getting this picture of a victorious kingdom. One more important picture, though, in chapter 8. One more critical picture about the anointed in chapter 8. Notice something extraordinary in verse 18. After naming off all of these sons, you'll notice in verse 15, David is establishing these various people in charge over his kingdom. Thus the names are given. But watch the very end of verse 18. And David's sons were priests. (laughs) You know what? David's sons were priests. Immediately, if you know much about the Scriptures, you realize that sounds like a problem. Remember, priests come from the tribe of Levi. David is of the tribe of Judah. How can it possibly be that David's sons would be priests. In fact, the problem is so difficult, you might have a translation that doesn't even read priests. It reads a different word to try to deal with the problem of how can it be that David's sons are priests. However, the Hebrew word here, guess what it is? It's priests. (laughs) So how can it be that David's sons are priests? If you've been with us in our study through First and Second Samuel, you may not really struggle with this that much, though. Because if you remember, if we reverse all the way back into First Samuel, we saw Samuel, who is not a priest, 
doing priestly things. And we saw that there is imagery behind that where Samuel looks like a replacement of Eli and a replacement of Eli's sons. No, he's not a priest, but he's in the presence of the Lord. And he seems to be operating as a priest. We even see Samuel going between God and the people and Samuel pleading on the people's behalf after they had sinned in regards to the Philistines. And so we've seen imagery of people who are not priests, but they're functioning like that. David is another example. You might remember in 1 Samuel chapter 21 that we see David going to the priests at Nob and he's eating the bread of the presence and it's considered as acceptable for him to do it. This imagery as if David were a priest. In 2 Samuel, all the more strongly remember when the Ark of the Covenant is coming back to Jerusalem, who's the one offering the sacrifices and who's the one leading the way? David is. Can David be a priest? No. But he seems to look like one. And I think we have something similar here. That the big picture, this huge picture of the anointed is this. The son of David is a priest. The son of David stands in the lineage of a king. And yet verse 18 says, David's sons are priests. Now it doesn't explain to us how. In fact, that's perhaps one of the mysteries of the Hebrew scriptures is waiting to try to understand this priest-king relationship and how Jesus ultimately becomes a fulfillment as king and priest. But you're getting a foreshadowing of the anointed. You're getting a picture of what this kingdom is going to look like with David who seems to look like a priest and functions as king. Sons are doing the same thing. When Christ comes, it's going to be a reality. It's not that he will just look like a priest. He will truly be prophet, priest, and king. And so chapter 8 gives us a beautiful picture of what we see with this victorious kingdom. Chapter 9 moves forward with the the picture of this kingdom. Chapter 9 is a gracious kingdom. In chapter 9 you have then an image of a gracious kingdom because once again the chapter sets it off in verse 1 where we see David asking a question. Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now that's an interesting question. And if again, if you've been with us, you might have a sense of what David is trying to do. David is trying to show kindness. Now, the Hebrew word under that is that hesed, which we've talked about is covenant Faithful love. That's a big Hebrew word that God keeps His promises. He fulfills His word. He follows through with His covenant. That's the word here. David wants to show covenantal faithful love to the house of Saul. Remember, David had made a covenant like that. Jonathan had said, when you become king... To show kindness to my relatives, my descendants. Because what you typically did in ancient Near Eastern times was you didn't show kindness to the opposition who might be a threat to your throne. You wiped them out. That was just the normal way about it. 
someone rises up to be king, they would even wipe out their own brothers. They would wipe out their own family members. And they would certainly wipe out anybody else who's a threat to the throne. Well, Saul's descendants could certainly lay claim and say, we're the ones who should be on the throne. Saul was the last king, and we're a son of Saul or a grandson of Saul, and so we should be king. And so rather than David wiping out those who are in Saul's house, he asked the question, is there anyone left in Saul's house, any of those descendants left, so that I can keep my covenant that I made to Jonathan? And don't forget, He also made it to Saul. Saul had said, I know you're going to be king and I don't want you to kill all of my descendants. And David made a covenant with Saul in the same way. And notice now that David is king, he doesn't retract and say, well, I had my fingers crossed or, you know, I didn't really want to follow through on that. He says, now I want to do that. Is there anybody left? Well, he calls for a servant that is in Saul's house. His name is Ziba in in verse 2 of chapter 9. And he asks him in verse 3, Is there anyone in Saul's house that I may show the kindness of God to him? Hear those words. David is going to display the kindness of God to the household of Saul. Now you can imagine the servant in Saul's house you might be a little nervous answering this question. (laughs) As you say, yeah, there's the grandson over here. We don't want, should I trust David that he's not looking to find this person to wipe him out? But Ziba answers there in in verse 3, there is still a son of Jonathan and he is crippled in his feet. Remember, David loved Jonathan. They were very close friends. And he finds out that Jonathan has a son who's still alive. His name is Mephibosheth. And so he tells him, bring him to me. Again, you can just imagine how scary that would be. Okay, I will bring Mephibosheth to you. You said you were going to show kindness, but you'll bring him to So that's exactly what happens. Mephibosheth comes into the presence of David. And you'll notice in in verse 6, the very end of verse 6, he answers to David, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Wow. Now on paper, Mephibosheth should be an enemy. And David says, here's what I'm going to do. You don't even have to go back home. You're going to stay here with me. And I'm going to have you eat at my table every day. Now, how good is the eating of a king's table? (laughs) All right. It's as good as you're going to get. Mephibosheth is going to be there with David and restore to him the father's house, all of the land as described there in verse 7. I'm going to restore to you the land of Saul, your father. I'm going to show you this covenantal kindness because of the covenant that I made with Jonathan. Notice the picture of David as the anointed 
offering hope, saying you can eat at my table, restoring the land and restoring blessings to the house of Saul. In fact, it's such a staggering declaration that Mephibosheth in verse 8 pays homage and says, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? I mean, Mephibosheth's like, why would you show such kindness to me? I'm nothing. I'm doomed. Remember, once Abner had gone over to David's side and then is killed, that was the last of the power that had belonged to Saul. Mephibosheth knows his time is short and rather than dying by the hand of David, he shows Mephibosheth kindness. He shows him covenant faithfulness. And I hope that you'll see as David shows him this kindness and restores this land and says, you will eat at my table always. Did you notice in verse 8 that Mephibosheth sounds a lot like David himself? Who am I that you would show such kindness? You get to see that Mephibosheth learned a lot from his father, Jonathan, And not from his grandfather, Saul. He sounds a lot like David. Where David, when the anointing comes upon, who am I that you would choose me? And constantly you hear David say, who would I be that I would have this opportunity? And Mephibosheth does the same thing. What is the servant of yours that you would show this regard for me? A a, a dead dog such as I. You see then the fortunes of Mephibosheth reversed. Mephibosheth, a crippled man, a man who has no future, a man who has no hope. All of those fortunes are reversed. And now he is at the very table with David. The rest of the chapter plays out in the good that he is going to do to all of that household and to all of Saul's servants and all who were in Saul's land. All of that is just describing all of the good that is done. In fact, notice the middle of verse 11. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. It's like he just adopted him. The enemy belongs at the table with David and is pictured as if he were a son of David himself. Final picture, picture of chapter 10. We've seen in chapter 8, this victorious kingdom. In chapter 9, David operating a gracious kingdom. In chapter 10, a peaceful kingdom is displayed. A peaceful kingdom in chapter 10. After showing this display of kindness and graciousness to Mephibosheth, chapter 10 opens that he finds out that the king of the Ammonites has died. And David wants to show kindness to the son of the king who's died, of the Ammonites, the new king over the Ammonites. And so what David does is he says, I'm going to send my messengers to him and offer my covenantal kindness to him and show mercies to him and blessings to him. And so that's what you see in verse two. I will deal loyally. Same word that has said that covenant faithful love. I'm going to show it even to the Ammonites. But verse three. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, their Lord, Do you think 
Because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father. Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city, to spy it out and to overthrow it? What do you think you're doing? David's not trying to show you kindness. He's trying to overthrow your kingdom. You should read between the lines. He is not for your good, but he's actually trying to overthrow your kingdom. And what you see next is shocking. Verse 4. Hanun took David's servants, shaved off half their beard each, and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. Friends, if you cut the clothing at the hips and send them back home, they're running home naked and shamed with half their beard and haircut. Absolute insult. And especially in ancient Near Eastern times, this would be like an atrocity, essentially. And that's, of course, how it is understood, how it is interpreted. David meets them, and it says that the men were greatly ashamed. He tells them to go to Jericho and stay there until their beards have grown, and then they return. The Ammonites know that this answer of diplomacy is going to be war. And so the Ammonites began to gather all of their men. In verse 6, they, the numbers of the soldiers are listed there. David, when he hears of it, he sends out Joab and begins to gather all his men. And it looks like they're doomed against the Ammonites. Verse 9, when Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in the front and in the rear. Now, if you've taken history, you know. Don't fight two front battles, right? You don't want your enemies in the front and in the back. You are in a world of trouble. So verse 9, Joab sees that the Ammonites are set in the front and in the rear. He chose some of his best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. But listen to what you hear him say in verse 11. He says, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Listen to verse 12. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. As a side point, Joab is an interesting fellow. Man, one day it seems like he's right with God, and the next day you're like, this guy is the worst man you've ever come across. But right now, wise words. He puts it in the hands of God. Who knows what God is going to do, but we will put it in the hands of God, and perhaps He will rescue us. Well, how do you suppose the rest of the chapter went? Of course God rescues Israel. Utter defeat against the Ammonites. Complete wipeout of these peoples as God gives His people the victory. And we see with these words of hope of Joab that he was right to trust in God. His words sound an awful lot like the three friends of Daniel. Perhaps God will deliver us. Perhaps God will be here and rescue us at this moment. And that's exactly what happens as God then gives them the victory. So the big message now, and it is an amazing message. (laughs) It's just a shocking message of what we see pictured here in these three chapters, because what we have witnessed with David as the anointed is that we see him doing good to the outcasts, Doing good to the outsiders, 
doing good to the lame, Mephibosheth. And what you see him doing is extending covenantal love and covenantal kindness to all who will receive it. This is the big message of what Jesus is coming to do when He arrives in the New Testament. Is that He is coming to the world and it's going to be the offer of covenantal love, covenantal faithfulness. And what is Jesus is offering is what David offered Mephibosheth. Why don't you come to my table and enjoy my blessings? And be treated as one of my sons. And I will restore all that you need. Everything you need is restored to you. And I'm going to cause this reversal. So that you can belong with me. That's the picture. That is being presented here regarding David. And it is a picture that is the same call to us. If you want to keep your hand here. You can look over. In the scriptures, if you would turn over to one of the places where you see the Apostle Paul describe this, Titus, in chapter chapter 3 of Titus, listen to what the Apostle Paul says here. Titus 3. In Titus chapter 3, let's start in verse 1 just to get the whole of it. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Why don't you just listen to the picture? Here's who we are. Disobedient, foolish, led astray. Pictures of you didn't belong. You're on the outside, led away by your various passions and lusts and desires, passing our days in malice and in envy. What's God's response going to be? Verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, it is the ultimate contrast. It is the contrast that is being depicted in the three chapters of 2 Samuel. Is look at the good, the kindness, the covenantal love that the anointed is going to display. Here we are led astray, slaves to passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. What had Mephibosheth done? So that David said, I'm going to do good to you. You live here in the palace with me. I'll treat you as one of my sons. And you sit here at the table and eat with me. What did Mephibosheth done? Nothing. He had done absolutely nothing. 
In fact, in the category of a worldly perspective, Mephibosheth is an enemy of the anointed. But when David comes, he reverses his fortunes. And that's what's being depicted here. It was not because of works done by us in righteousness, the rest of verse 5, but according to his own mercy. It's because of his own faithfulness to his word, because of his covenantal love, because God always does what he says by the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's what happened to Mephibosheth. You're, hey, you're just going to be like a son. In fact, we loved that in the book of Hebrews, didn't we? (laughs) What a picture is given of coming into the family of God, enjoying the blessings, not merely as servants of God, but as children of God. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying to Titus. This is the foreshadowing of Jesus is that the call is for everyone to come to the table and enjoy the blessings. Here's the shocking part to all of this. David was extending the same thing to the Ammonites and showing love and covenantal faithfulness. And what did they do? They said, that can't be for real. David can't be wanting to show us this kindness and goodness and faithfulness and reverse our fortunes and show us this, these blessings, he must have an ulterior motive. And so they rejected the anointed. And by rejecting the anointed, they were destroyed. It is hard to understand why the typical response to the kindness, covenantal love, and faithfulness of God is so often like what the Ammonites did of rejection, dismissal, insult, and hatred. If we would boil this invitation down to just simply this, Jesus came, to reverse our fortunes, to take us from being outsiders and bring us into the family, to sit us at the table and to feast with Him and enjoy all the blessings that come with belonging to that kingdom. And our typical response is, I don't want that. And it's hard to understand. Many years ago, you might remember this happened. Apple decided in their releasing of a new phone that they would release free music to everybody who had one of their devices. A terribly popular band, especially back then, band called U2. Everybody my age and under love U2. Huge, huge global band. And Apple said, we will do something. Their brand new album that came out. We will give it to you free. It will be on your device. And people got angry. Absolutely angry. 
And I love that there was a meme that kind of went out that I thought was appropriate. And it said this, U2 equals good. Free equals good. Free U2 doesn't equal good? <laughs> what are we so upset about? <laughs> oh. There's something interesting about the human nature that when kindness is being displayed, we shake our fist at it and go, How dare you? And God is the greatest display of that. Somehow, some way, all God is doing is saying, I'm trying to bless you and put you at my table. And we shake our fist at God and go, How dare you? How dare you do that? I just have a hard time imagining at the moment when David said to Mephibosheth, Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to restore all of your lands. I'm going to restore your fortunes. All of your servants and all your belongings are put back. And you will eat at my table and enjoy being like one of my sons. That Mephibosheth would have said, no way. (laughs) No, no. How dare you give me such a wonderful offer? How could you possibly do that? Mephibosheth's answer is, who am I? That you would treat me like that. Did you notice there's two responses in the text? To how to accept the loving kindness of the anointed. One response is like Hunan, who says, how dare you try to offer me kindness? I know what you're all about. Reject the kindness and be judged. When we read it, it was illogical, wasn't it? Why would you reject the kindness of the king? All he's trying to do is show you good. The other option is to be like Mephibosheth. And when the anointed says, you can sit at my table and you can enjoy all the blessings and I will treat you as one of my children to respond with the same humility Who am I that you would allow me? As pictured here, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to passions and pleasures, spending days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating others. How would you possibly choose me to sit at your table? But that's the gospel message. That's what Jesus came to do. And these three chapters in 2 Samuel were trying to picture what an amazing, victorious, gracious, peaceful kingdom Jesus had come to establish. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, Who are we that you would care about us like that? We know that what the scriptures say, we are your enemies. We are rebellious. We are sinners. We are helpless. And in spite of our condition at the right time, you sent your son to die. 
it is so hard for us to understand that you would do such good toward us. That you would love us in spite of our sins. That you would care for us in spite of our foolishness. And that you would offer us healing, restoration, blessings, and hope. Lord, forgive us for when we have rejected your offer. Forgive us for when we've insulted the offer, when we've said that your offer is of no value to us. Lord, help us to just constantly see this picture in our minds. That what you've come to do is give us the most wonderful offer in the world. That we could be your children. And that we could feast at the table with you. Lord, help us to live our lives ever aware of the offer. Ever aware of who we are. Ever aware of the kingdom that we belong to. And ever aware of the darkness and sinfulness that you have pulled us out from so that we could belong to the kingdom of your marvelous life. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you for taking broken, crippled outsiders like us and making us your family. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing the invitation song now. We're going to invite you to come to Jesus. Invite you to see what the offer is all about. This is the offer. This is the picture that you would come to him and see that you can belong to him as his child and belong to him with eternity and the blessings all there at your fingertips. If there's any way we can help you, won't you come while we stand, while we sing.